In the 1980s, the city of Philadelphia had a graffiti problem. It was pretty severe, severe enough that the neighbors in the area saw the degree of the vandalism as a plague. And by initiative of the mayor at the time in the 80s, they decided that the best way to address the problem of graffiti art was with graffiti art. They hired a host of professional artists to paint elaborate murals across the blank walls that were regularly debased with vandalism. And when the first mural started to crop up, the neighbors looked at their plane with a little bit of skepticism. They saw a beautiful thing being made, but were certain that it would be vandalized. But once it was made, they were surprised that they were proven wrong. Making professional art proved to be an effective deterrent to debased vandal art. And now there are thousands of murals around Philadelphia creating economic opportunity, increasing property value, and vandalism is an afterthought. There is something naturally embedded within human nature that sees sacredness in beauty worth preserving and worth enjoying. Whether that's a mural on a city wall, the Mona Lisa in the Louvre, a warm sunrise and a cool fall morning, or the love and the comfort that we feel in a mutually fulfilling relationship. The Christian faith teaches that God created a beautiful world to enjoy. But a faith also shows us that human nature is prone to abuse and corrupt the beauty that God created. Today, as we enter back into the origins of creation and humanity in Genesis, we want to understand more about the beauty that God created this world with and how, in light of humans' propensity to abuse and corrupt that beauty, how can we enjoy beauty suitably? My goal today is to illustrate the beauty of God in a way that will enrich your reverence for him and will invigorate your joy in this world and the God who created it. In order to do so, I want to explain to you the essence of what beauty is. Then I want us to be able to examine the sources of abuse and corruption of beauty. Then, in light of the abuses of corruptions of it, we want to see how can beauty actually be restored. And then, with a proper view of restored beauty, how can we enjoy it suitably? So, the essence of beauty, its abuses, its restoration, and reverent enjoyment. What is the essence of beauty? Beauty, though we can talk about it intellectually, theoretically, philosophically, and we will, is less of an intellectual exercise and more of a visceral experience. It's not so much a thinking thing as it is a feeling thing. British philosopher Roger Scruton, who wrote about aesthetic philosophy, wrote this. He said, beauty demands to be noticed. 
it speaks to us like the voice of an intimate friend. If there are people who are indifferent to beauty, then it is surely because they do not perceive it. So then, what makes a beautiful thing beautiful? When you see it and it evokes within you a sense of pleasantness, desirability, why are beautiful things beautiful? Christian writer Jonathan King authored a book called The Beauty of the Lord, and he develops his understanding, a Christian understanding of beauty, based on a classical philosophical theory of beauty. Jonathan King writes, Beauty is an intrinsic quality of things which, when perceived, please the mind by displaying a certain kind of fittingness. Fittingness. That is to say, beauty is discerned through objective properties such as proportion, unity, variety, symmetry, harmony, intricacy, delicacy, simplicity, suggestiveness. I do most of my work with words and with speaking, and sometimes I try and cultivate artistic expression in it, but I wouldn't normally consider myself an artistic person. I mean, I played clarinet in elementary school, but I mean, it was elementary school. So as a generally non-artistic person, when I hear philosophical understandings about like fittingness for beauty, it kind of doesn't compute for me. But then I started to think about it a little bit more in music specifically. And when I understand fittingness in music, it kind of makes sense when I apply it to other things. It's easy to notice beautiful music. It's also really easy to notice ugly music. You know music that's not good and that's kind of distasteful, even though you might know what are the objective properties of fittingness that should be applied to music. You can feel it when it's not right. When something is out of tune, off pitch, off tempo, it's clear something is wrong right now. But when a musician is true to the basic properties of fittingness within their craft, like tune and pitch and tempo, and they play their music with a skillful, prince, uh, skillful brilliance, you don't need to ask yourself, is this beautiful? You, you don't wonder, is this musician using all of the basic fitting properties that are true to their art form? You know it because you feel it. It's the same whether it's visual arts or architecture, painting or poetry, graphic design or interior design, cooking or calligraphy. Different art forms have different properties, but generally... We call them beautiful because they display a form of fittingness. How did our sensory world come to have properties like this? Why are these beautiful things actually here? Christianity understands that these properties of beauty exist because of the perfectly beautiful, one true living God of the scriptures who made it. Father, Son, and Spirit. The beauty that exists in the world exists because God spoke it in the world and he could speak it into the world because the beauty that we see and perceive is true to his nature. 
and we take delight in the beauty that we see around it. But interestingly, God did not need to make the world that he made. God himself is perfect in his beauty, is perfect in his moral perfections, and God is a triune community. Beautiful things are worth taking in delight in. They're, worth, they're desirable, they're lovely and worth loving. And before creation, in eternity past, John 17, Jesus says that the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. God as a being was fully satisfied in his own beautiful perfections. Why then did God create if he did not need to create? The same reason a surgeon needs to be able to demonstrate their skill and craft of their arts and the science in removing tumors and healing bodies. The same way a painter desires and wants to take a blank canvas, imagine beauty in their mind, and then express it on that canvas. The same reason that you use vector designs and Photoshop and create things that you sit in and are satisfied in because beautiful things are worth enjoying. And to be enjoyed, then should be expressed. This is why God created, and the crown of God's creative work is the person sitting next to you. Humanity. From dust to a human, animated to live in his own image. And as creatures made in him his image, we have creative faculties. And we are true to our creator when we employ them and when we use them. God created a beautiful world for us to enjoy and for beauty for us to cultivate within it. Now, primarily we've been discussing beauty in a sensory manner, how we respond to it in taste and feel and sight and touch. Beauty is generally understood in a sensory manner, but in our daily life and in the scriptures, we can see beauty also applied in an ethical manner. In the realm of ethics, right and wrong and how we live to do good, we see properties of fittingness that exemplify a kind of beauty. You can see also and feel the, the, the ugly things that happen in ethics as well. Turn on the news and you consistently see stories of people getting away with things that are clearly wrong and you look at it and you say, that's disgusting. Well, it's disgusting because first, ethically, it's just wrong. It's clearly, objectively wrong, but it's not just wrong, it's bad. Unethical things are not just wrong and bad, but they're also ugly. And they're ugly because they're out of balance. They're out of harmony. What was whole in this person, you corrupted. So when we think about beauty then in ethics, it's the things that bring us back to balance and bring us back to wholeness. When we see acts of mercy and compassion on those who are hurting, we call it right. We call it good. We call it beautiful. 
And just as we see beauty in our sensory world coming from our creator God, we see beauty in our ethical world because it comes from our creator God. A worldview void of a creator and that believes that humanity merely progressed to the place that it is through a combination of random chance circumstances and time has no moral basis to be able to say one thing is beautiful and one thing is another. It's only interested in fitness and survival. But we have ethical categories and worldviews that don't acknowledge a creator betray their own experiences as humans as it regards to ethical beauty. And the most beautiful of ethical qualities are seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ who redeems us from our sin and brings us back to wholeness and balance and desires us to be holy as he is holy and desires his church to be a bride. Beautiful. God created a beautiful world for us to enjoy. We see that beauty through intrinsic qualities that we call fittingness. We experience that beauty in sensory ways. We experience it in ethical ways. God created a beautiful world for us to enjoy, but human nature is prone to abuse and corrupt that beauty. I want us now to look at the, the nature of how humanity abuses the beauty that God created. Now, all of us have contributed to the ugliness of the world in one way or another, but some of us have uniquely been affected and harmed by the ugliness of the world. And when you hear the words abuses and corruption, you don't just think about the sin that you've done, you actually think about what's been done to you. And sorrowfully, the worst of corruptions and abuses that humanity does isn't just an art, but it's what it does to God's crowning masterpiece in one another. And you may have been wrongfully abused by other people. And as a result of that, you may be feeling scarred and defiled and stains that you may be carrying for a long time. There's hope that God restores the abuses and corruptions of beauty. But I want us to be able to identify and see how it happens so that we can just recognize how beautiful God's restoration of beauty is. How do abuses of beauty happen? I believe there's a pattern we can see in Genesis 2 and in Genesis 3, that shows us how each of us are prone to abuses. We see that abuse in Genesis 3, the greatest of abuses, when the serpent instigates Eve to take of the fruit which God had forbidden. Look at what Eve observes in the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil before she sinfully takes of it. Look at Genesis 3, verse 4 to verse 7. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See now the things that Eve notices, verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve noticed that this tree was good for food. 
Eve noticed that it was a delight to the eyes and desire to be made wise. Now, one of those three things was objectively a crooked twist and lie. One of those things was, had a seed of truth, but one of those things was not wrong at all. It was actually quite right. It was wrong for her to desire to be like God. It was wrong for her to desire it for food. It was not wrong that it was a delight to the eyes. Look at chapter 2, verse 8 and verse 9. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve saw in that tree objectively what God made that tree to be, a delight to the eyes. The problem wasn't that she found delight in the visual appeal of the tree. The problem was that she replaced God's design for that tree with her desire. And that she replaced God's authority over how she used that tree with her autonomy. There could have been a way that she could have enjoyed the beauty of that tree and not abused it. To see its visual beauty, to take delight, but not to transgress God's command and eat it. This is the same pattern that persists today and is the reason why you abuse beauty. It's the reason we abuse one another. And it's the reason we look at the world and see sensory things and beautiful things and call them ugly. The abuse and corruption of beauty happens when we subvert God's design for the created world with my desire for it. And when we subvert God's authority over how we should use it with my autonomy. God created a beautiful world for us to enjoy. How are you subverting God's design with your desire? How are you subverting God's authority with your autonomy? Just as beauty is a felt experience, ugliness is as well. We viscerally feel the shame and defilement through the abuses of beauty and through the absences of beauty. And then when we look around us and when we feel defilement and we see stains and ugliness everywhere, and some, for some of us it feels like it is domineering, like a dark cloud that has pushed away all sunlight, what do we do? How can I actually enjoy beauty when everything feels so broken? And is there a way that, that things can actually be made right? Beautiful. The discussion of beauty is not merely theoretical or philosophical in inquiry. When we talk about beauty and ugliness, when we talk about honor and shame, it bleeds into the core of our personal identity and dignity. It affects our own humanity. People try in a lot of different ways to restore it. And I want to show you a Christ-centered way 
that God restores beauty and that we can participate in that as well. But first, I want to show you distorted ways that people try that fall short of what we can actually do to restore beauty and then to enjoy it. And in this regard, I'm going to talk more about the ethical experiences of beauty, but I do believe it affects our artistic expression as well. How do we restore beauty? One perspective often adopted by people is to preserve the beauty that does remain in the midst of the ugliness. Generally, this is the perspective held by people who have tradition, traditionally moral Western values. They may not explicitly be religious, they may be, but they've grown up in a world that kind of shares that values. And they think about the way that they grow up and how things were, and they look out into society now, and they don't see progress, they see decay. Whether that's family, marriage, parenting, gender, sexuality, institutions, pop culture, liberal arts, humanities and philosophies. Things that were right, things that were good, things that have been beautiful and accepted and honored are now not only being called into question, but are being called oppressive and are eroding away and being destroyed. So they see all this happening and the desire in order to restore beauty is preserve it. And that can be a noble aim, but that aim can also be distorted. Because the best that we do in trying to preserve what we see is beautiful, it's really hard. It seems like the rot keeps going in and closer. And our efforts are in vain. And as hard as we, you may try to preserve beauty, as you see the encroaching ugliness that you see, it produces this sense of anger. It can produce this sense of self-righteous superiority. That I am clearly in the right. And they are clearly in the wrong. And what happens is this tone and this attitude towards an other that you see anytime you would turn on cable news networks and watch about how one side talks about the other side. Mercilessly. As an enemy. All while trying to preserve and restore beauty. The heart of this perspective might seem noble and might seem right. Jesus even says that we are the salt of the earth, we are the light of the world, but this type of approach to try and restore beauty, lacking mercy and grace, more closely resembles disciples of Pharisees than disciples of Jesus. There's a second perspective that people try and employ to try and restore the beauty that they see eroding away. And this second perspective is not trying to preserve, but trying to destigmatize. This approach generally sees people who have been historically marginalized in society for the choices that they've made. They've been marginalized for the choices they've made under a, a secular ethic of choice and consent. They made their own choice, and they should have the autonomy to do that. And as long as they're doing it with consent and not hurting people, whatever they do should be right, and it shouldn't be wrong, and it should be called beautiful. 
but they see people who historically have been shamed and they call them oppressed and that their dignity is been marred. So in order to make things beautiful, we need to destigmatize. We need to normalize these things that were once done in secret for fear of shame. They should be brought to the front and paraded around. If people are going to have the beauty of their dignity restored, they need to see that they can love who they can love, that they can live how they want to live without fear. Now, the underlying desire for that might seem noble, that you want to restore people's dignity, but the shift of the ethical standard away from God towards the individual has unfortunately proved many damaging ironies. You can see this in the news right now with Hockey Canada. We hear sex scandals like this, where sexual abuse towards women is normalized as a part of a culture and then attempted to be covered up. And we see it, and a secular person would say, this is wrong, this is bad, this is ugly. Sexual abuse towards women is absolutely intolerable. And it is. But at the same time, at the same time, a secular person operating under a reduced ethic that only says the only ethic is choice and consent is on the flip side of the coin completely ready to tolerate in our arts through the mainstream of HBO shows, the music movies that we watch, the music we listen to, and the pornographic material that is readily available to children, that supposedly artistic display of treatment towards women. And we tolerate the one, and somehow are surprised that it becomes part of our lifestyle. Sorrowfully, and maybe even hypocritically, this approach cannot restore beauty. It will only compound the ugliness. God created a beautiful world for us to enjoy. Neither an exclusive preservation perspective or destigmatization method is going to be able to restore beauty. What can? It can't be truly restored if it's just preservation by segregation and you're over there and I'm over here and I'm going to criticize you. Beauty won't be restored if it's just normalization by destigmatization. We have all abused and corrupted the beauty that God has made. But this is how God restores beauty and how we ourselves should model. Christ didn't distance himself from our vileness. To restore it, God entered into it. God suffered under it so that we would be transformed from it, out of our ashes, and into his beauty. The true beauty of God is seen in the master artistry of his redemption, accomplished through incarnation, through his substitution, and through his resurrection. He, the Christ, enjoyed the fullness of beauty and delight and joy in the perfection of the Trinity for all of eternity and was satisfied there, but left that 
hall of museum of beauty to come into the ash heap of our sin. He became incarnate. But then he did not just incarnate himself into the world to be around sinful, broken humanity. He absorbed and became our ugliness and took on himself our defilement when he died on that cross. The cross is the ugliest thing imaginable. Christ suffered God's wrath for our sin. The spotless son of God who was fully man was tortured in his body beyond resemblance of what a human body was. When we see the bloody mess of the old rugged cross, you see what your soul looks like before a holy God. No wonder we'd rather normalize and destigmatize the shame that we feel for our sin. We don't want to see it. Yet there is a paradox in the beauty of the cross. Whereas it, it is at the same time the ugliest thing imaginable. It is not only appallingly grotesque, it is strikingly beautiful. Because it restores us. He suffered and was defiled so that we could be cleansed. The one who has faith in Christ is fully cleansed of the blemish of their sin and totally clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness so that the Father who enjoyed perfect community with the Son and the Spirit for all of eternity past in the purest of delight and the purest of joy and the purest of love can look at you friend, can look at you, Christian, and have that same delight and love and pleasure in you that he has in his own son. God didn't separate himself from the ugliness. He came into it. He was ruined by it so that he could transform it. This is what he can do for you. Friend, if you look at your own soul and you know you've been living your own way to try and make your own self in your own image of beauty, but you still feel stung in shame, know that you can be made new and beautiful in a moment. By faith in Jesus, the ugliness of your soul will be buried to death. And by faith in Jesus, the beauty of Christ's righteousness will be risen to life in you and you will be clothed incorruptibly in the beauty of Christ. Friend, no longer normalize and hide your sin. Let it be brought to the open and let Christ cleanse you. Believe on him. Christian, so many of us feel so secure, insecure, so often because we have such misplaced hope for where our dignity lies. It's not in your body image. It's not in your career advancements. It's not in how well you're able to order your home and your children. Your dignity 
is defined by God's love for you in Christ. And he loves you and takes delight in you because you are clothed in the incorruptible beauty of Jesus. Believe that. Jesus delights in you. When we see how God has restored beauty, that he is the creator of it, that we need to revere how he made it, then we are positioned properly to see that our desires must be subject to his design. Our autonomy must be subject to his authority. And when we rightly align ourselves as the creature before God the creator and see that Christ redeems us, we can again enjoy beauty suitably. How can we do that? God created a beautiful world for us to enjoy. We are often prone to abuse and corrupt it. How can we then, seeing how Christ restores our beauty, how can we enjoy this world that he has made? Three things that I would say to take our time to a close. First, appreciate it. One of the challenges that we have in our culture today is the mass explosion of media around us that pretends to show that it is beautiful. That we are surrounded by, within uh, four frames of pictures and videos, and it calls itself art. But because there's so much of the supposed art around and so little of our attention, art today is often optimized not for beauty but for addictiveness. That's what author Mark Manson says. So most of the things that we are exposed to aren't, don't care about making beautiful things, don't care about the state and nature of your soul. They just want to keep your eyes locked to feed you more ads to make your relationship with art to their economic advantage. And we forget that Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If the eye is healthy, the whole body is healthy. But if your eye is full of darkness, your whole body is full of darkness. Art is not benign. If we're going to appreciate the beauty of the world that we made, we need to tether our appreciation of beauty to the fear of God. That's what was lacking in Genesis when Eve and Adam took of the fruit. They did not just want the beauty of seeing it, they wanted to take it beyond what God said. When you appreciate beauty, whether that's in the movies or the music that you watch, the relationships ethically that you have and the things that you do, we can appreciate it rightly when we esteem it rightly. And then when we see true beauty, slow down and take your time. Jonathan Edwards says that all of the beauty that we see in the world are just drops of water, but God is the ocean. They are rivers that should lead us to the glory of God. Appreciate the beauty of this world by seeing the one who made it. Take delight in the thing, but take delight in the creator who made it all. Appreciate beauty, but then also cultivate beauty. We are creatures made in God's image. God is creative. We can be as well. And I'm thinking of the creatives in our church who regularly make art, uh, 
make art as a hobby or maybe even professionally, whatever your art may be. There are two brothers from England, both who share the last name Hitchens. The one Christopher Hitchens has been deceased for a few years now, but was much more known than his other brother. And he was a atheist who had a significant hatred towards religion and Christianity specifically. The other Hitchens, Peter, was arguably an even greater opponent to the faith and to Christianity and had a more visceral hatred than Christopher. But Peter Hitchens eventually was converted and Christian art was effective in his return to the faith. Journalist Peter Hitchens says this about art. I would think that the most educated atheists are much more likely to be suddenly ambushed in the heart by poetry than they ever are likely to be converted by reasoned argument. A lot of what is conveyed by Christianity has to be conveyed by this form because words, even the most beautiful words, cannot fully convey it. For those of you who consider yourself creatives, see the redemptive value of what your art can do. Let it be so skillful and so brilliant that it captures the attention of those who would see it or hear it or touch it. But a Christian's art does not to be, need to be explicitly religious. Whenever possible, though, let your art display the wide spectrum of the colors of redemption. Some of you may be professional artists, and you're just like, well, I mean, my boss just wants me to make like a another Instagram post, like. <laughs> your work in art may be more focused on your brand's image or on marketing content or just make something that works. God is honored not just in creative work that conveys God's beauty, but God is honored in creative work that is done with excellence. Because scripture admonishes us that whatever we do, we must do it to the glory of God. Appreciate beauty, cultivate beauty, and then also be an agent of restoration for beauty. Christians are so often prone to see the vileness of the world and to remove ourselves from it. But we are called to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Have the courage, have the humility, have the compassion to see people making defiled choices creating defiled things. And rather than like a Pharisee being fearful that they'll defile you, step in with humility and courage and compassion. We are ambassadors for Christ. In his commentary on Psalm 45, a psalm which celebrates the beauty of the messianic king Jesus, Martin Luther says this, Christ did not keep company with the holy, powerful, and wise but with despicable and miserable sinners, with those ruined by misfortune, with men weighed down by painful and incurable diseases. These he healed, comforted, raised up, and helped. May we be Christians who step into the defilement of this world, but are used by God through the gospel to restore it to beauty. Let's pray.